This is AM Rush. I'm your host, Alex Mitchell. Tuesday, April 28th, some headlines out of AM New York Metro. New York City will be closing more streets to cars and expanding sidewalk during coronavirus. That came from Mayor Bill de Blasio. And healthcare workers are treated to a flyover from the Navy's Blue Angel planes. That's tomorrow. I'll tell you when you can watch and where they're going to be. They're going to be all over the city in the tri-state. And sports editor of AM New York Metro, Joe Pantorno, put together a really, really cool way of looking at the greatest baseball team ever assembled. Not all at once, though. Different players from different eras and how they would make up this extremely awesome fantasy team. This is AM Rush. Let's start off with Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing in a news conference on Monday that the city council had come forward with a vision for opening up more streets that alleviates concerns by the city's police department. Now, the mayor said over the next month, New York will create a minimum of 40 miles of open streets. Now, these are going to be areas that would focus around parks and where officials expect people to congregate and where people would go as the weather gets warmer. Now, the mayor also said the city would expand sidewalks and create more temporary bike lanes, but that's all we know about that so far. Now, this concept had been used in San Francisco and Denver. Over in Europe, it was used in Italy, Ireland, Germany, and plenty of other places. And last week, members of the New York City Council introduced a bill to dedicate 75 miles of streets to pedestrians and cyclists by closing at least one lane to vehicles while coronavirus restrictions are in place. And what better way to say thank you than for the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds to do a flyover New York City? The two types of military planes, in show of support to honor healthcare heroes, are doing a flyover on New York City. Now, this is part of a nationwide tour to lift American spirits during the turmoil. Now, it's going to include six F-16 Fighting Falcons, which are the Thunderbirds, and six F-18 Hornets, who are the Blue Angel naval planes. This is going to get started at about noon over the George Washington Bridge and around the Bronx. They're going to go down the Hudson River towards New Jersey, do a U-turn at Newark. Then they're going to hit Brooklyn. Wow, this is a cockamamie route. Then they're going to hit Brooklyn, then over to Staten Island. Then they're going to cut over Lower Manhattan into Queens. And then from there, they're going to fly out to Long Island, drifting down towards Long Island South Shore by the Robert Moses beaches in Suffolk County. Then they're going to keep going, turn around, wind up cutting through Stamford, Connecticut after they cross the Long Island Sound, then down to White Plains, and end by the Veranzano Bridge at about 1240. So within this 40 minutes, that is the flight plan. So if you're out or if you just want to pop outside, send us some videos of the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds flying overhead. We would love to put something very cool together. So... Something exciting. I, I remember the first time I got to see a Thunderbird land. I was a 13-year-old kid, and that was something awesome. So the weather seems like it's going to be a good day for this, and make sure you take your lunch break at noon today. And even though we don't have sports going on at the moment, now is a great time to look in perspective of 
all of the awesome teams that have come in the past, particularly for baseball. Now, AM New York Metro sports editor Joe Pantorno is working on a really, really cool interactive project where you get to vote and pick what would be the greatest baseball roster of all time. Now, we have Joe with us. We're going to talk to him now. Basically, what we're doing here at AM New York Metro is that we, with the help of our readers, we're going to try and put together um, Major League Baseball's all-time starting lineup. Uh, so basically, it'll be one player per position, uh, per position uh, putting together you know, all of the errors um, and, and trying to put together, I guess, the best team possible. So what we'll do is, uh, starting tomorrow, uh, every day we'll, we'll present a position to our readers, uh, and I'm going to aggregate a list of 10 of the best players, uh, I guess that you can say have ever played at the position, and obviously that could fuel a debate within itself. Um, but I've kind of created this algorithm at least to, um, kind of hone down the list to just 10. Uh, I think because if we had more than that, the, the voting results would be so skewed in a way. Um, so basically what we've been looking at is just uh, traditional stats, um, which, you know, you look on any scorecard or box score or baseball stat line, you'll see hits, home runs, batting average, on-base percentage, OPS, things like that. That's what really kind of is the first thing we look at when interpreting whether a player is good or great or elite or Hall of Famer however you'd like to call it. Um, but then we also look at uh, wins above replacement, which is a um, kind of an advanced stat that has been uh, kind of controversial, I guess, in the baseball community. Some people live and die by the stat. Other people really don't like it. Um, really, that is a, um, it's a statistic estimating just how many wins a player can bring to his team and uh, how many, I guess, wins a team would lose with him out of the lineup. And it's been, it, it's kind of allowed us to quantify just how valuable players are, not so much today, but particularly in the past when we try and kind of explain the worth of uh, some of these Hall of Famers. Well, yeah, you know, Babe Ruth revolutionized baseball and he was the game's first real power hitter and uh, brought the popularity of the game to such a new level. But, but can he get on you base? Know, how, Exactly. How valuable was he to his team? So war kind of helps um, decipher that, and it allows us to properly or try to properly compare him to, say, somebody like Mike Trapp today. Um, so then, obviously, we'll look at that, too. We look at uh, if a player was able to win or help his team achieve success. Um, I think that's going to be coming up in our catcher debate. Because really, if you kind of look at the stats, you can say, well, on one hand, Mike Piazza is the greatest offensive catcher of all time. But on the other hand, uh, there's really been no other catcher that's won as much as Yogi Berra, who's considered, again, one of the best. So, you know, these are the kind of debates that'll help bring it all together. Um, and then finally, we'll kind of take into consideration the eras in which they played. Uh, not so much as saying that say a player like Babe Ruth is at a disadvantage because he played in an earlier time, but there are certain factors that each player and each era had to contend with. So if you're looking at a player like Ty Cobb, who was, you know, the early 1900s greatest hitter, 
uh, he had to deal with outlawed pitches. Um, you know, he was during his prime. It was in the dead ball era, where he had to face pitchers that regularly regularly threw the spitball, and conditions were extremely bad for hitters. And you know, baseballs themselves weren't switched out after every pitch or every at bat. So you're playing a a full game with one ball. So you're trying to track a baseball that's, you know, brown or even black coming out of the pitcher's hands. And, you know, all these things kind of add up. And if you go across the areas, you'll find each time period kind of had its own challenge, whether pitcher's mounds were, were raised or even coming into today, just the advancements in, in technology and, and training and conditioning, um, how players are just so much stronger and uh, kind of more well-conditioned for this, where it's a, a year-round job. It's, it's you know, baseball is now a science. So, you know, we can say that the game itself as a whole is more difficult today. So, again, these are all things that we try and piece together to properly compare players from different eras. So... Hopefully, you'll be able to make the most informed decision when you're voting between somebody like a Christy Mathewson or a Sandy Koufax, something like that. So, uh, yeah, this will be a nice, fun project. Hopefully, it, it, it takes our, our minds off of what's going on in the outside world, uh, even if it's for a few minutes. And uh, hopefully, uh, our readers can get involved and really enjoy it. So, uh, they'll have an opportunity to vote and um you know, they'll be able to do so basically after uh, we release the article, they can vote on our uh, social media pages or they can come and find me on Twitter or uh, via email and they can tell me who they want. We'll keep track and we'll, we'll hopefully build something fun here. And Joe, another point about just the different eras and almost the different dimensions of baseball the literal different dimensions of baseball. When you look at a, a field like the Polo Grounds or even Ebbets Field, 250 feet will get you a home run in right field, but you know, 500 feet down center field and Willie Mays makes the catch. Right, and I think that's what was the beautiful thing about baseball back then. Um, it, it, it sort of, well, those old stadiums, they really had to adapt to their surroundings. And, you know, a big reason why, say, the Green Monster at Fenway Park was built is because they had to find a way to fit a stadium into these confined spaces where, okay, you know, down the left field line, it's 320 feet. Well, how can we combat that to make sure that every pop-up down the left field line isn't a home run? Oh, well, we'll build the wall 37 feet high or however high it is. Um, So really... Each of those old school ballparks kind of absorbed the community around it. And those dimensions had to be tweaked just for the stadium to fit. And I think that, you know, I think obviously that's what's lost today. And really in the 70s and the 80s, they kind of came out with these cooker cutties, uh, cookie cutter stadiums uh, where the um, dimensions are you know, pretty similar, not entirely similar, but, uh, you know, that's what was so special about uh, those old stadiums and what kind of gave 
each city's ballpark its charm. And that's why, you know, a place like Wrigley Field and a place like Fenway Park, that's why they're so revered nowadays because it's that link to the past. And, you know, it kind of helps explain or, uh, or it helps fans take a look back as to why baseball is the way it is, why dimensions aren't uniform today. Um, so it's, it's that fun kind of stuff where, you know, we can kind of look back and, uh, you know, learn something new, I guess. The way that I look at a stadium's dimensions is similar to a city skyline. Everyone is meant to be different. When you go to Boston, you're supposed to know, wow, if you not even dealing with the green monster, but you can hit like a 250-foot ground rule double down the right field line. And I saw Andrew Benatendi do that in person, actually, and I was baffled by it. Or if you go to Chicago, you have the Ivy, you have this, you have that. You can watch a game from a literal rooftop at Wrigley Field. And, of course, the iconic, iconic, iconic facade at Yankee Stadium, the short porch in right field, as it's been called. You know, that's part of it. Just as, like I said, every time you go to a city, you see buildings created, built, developed differently for that specific purpose. You want it to have, you want to know you're in Chicago when you see the Willis Tower. You want to know you're in New York when you see the Empire State Building or the World Trade Center. So that makes it it's so exciting. And I think what you're doing here with this is really cool because it puts it in perspective. And just like you, I'm a, I'm a history nerd. I love learning more about the history of the game and who are some other New York ballplayers that are going to be up for mention? Okay, well, um, you know, we've been, New York has been blessed to have really four big major league teams uh, play in the city over the past 100 plus years. Obviously, before the Mets, there were the Giants and Dodgers that were playing in New York and obviously with the Yankees. So, there's options abound. Um, and so I guess just on a short list, we'll go, you know, I'll just list a couple that I can off the top of my head. Um, you'll obviously see Tom Seaver from the Mets and Mike Piazza from the Mets. Um, from the Yankees, obviously laden with big guns. You'll have Babe Ruth. You'll have Luke Gehrig. You'll have Mickey Mantle. You'll have Joe DiMaggio. You'll have Berra. Uh, you'll have Dickey. Um, and then from the Brooklyn Dodgers, you'll see Roy Campanella in the catcher comp, uh, conversation. Um, depending on how things work out, you could see Jackie Robinson in the second base conversation. Um, Pee Wee Reese in the shortstop conversation. And then for the Giants, they're obviously headlined by Willie Mays. Um, and again, once I completely run the numbers, but obviously dark horse candidates that you could possibly see on the ballot. Uh, Melot, you might see. Um, Christy Mathewson, obviously, is going to be in the pitching conversation. He was one of the premier pitchers in the uh, early 1900s and 1910s. Uh, so those are, at least off the top of my head, who you could see. Uh, so there will be a lot of local pride, I guess. And hopefully that doesn't skew the decision makers, but uh, we all know that nostalgia is one hell of a drug and uh Team loyalty is something on a completely different level than that. So um, I will ask that everybody tries to be as objective as possible. Obviously a big ass, but at the end of the, at the end of the day, I just want everybody to have fun with it. 
of course, and it is something to be fun. And, you know, to the Yankees and the Mets credit, because the Mets two championship teams were nothing to scoff at. And compared to other championship teams, they would totally go the distance. But you got to remember, the Yankees managed to put, like, some of the best of the best on the field together consistently. So that local pride might even add up to, to the facts. And, of course, there's plenty of other talent, plenty of other unsung overwhelmingly superstar players that may have not had the particular success of Derek Jeter, but they're talented nonetheless. Exactly. And yes, Jeter's obviously going to be on that list at shortstop. And I apologize for overlooking him in this initial conversation. Uh, But, you know, and I, I do want to kind of talk about Jeter because if you go and, and, and speak to a lot of baseball fans, uh, especially those who are around our age, they will tell you that Derek Jeter is the greatest shortstop of all time. And I'm not sure. Actually, I, I'm curious to hear what you would think about this, too. You know, if you were to, if you were to pick the greatest shortstop of all time, where would you have Derek Jeter? That's tough. Right. He, he's the greatest of an era. And that's yes. where I think we're going to have fun with this. Exactly. So for me, you know, my personal opinion, and, and again, I, I won't say, I'll try not to say it out loud, um, but to me, Derek Jeter is not number one. And I have somebody uh, completely different at number one who played, you know, who played their baseball 120 years ago. Uh, so really, it's, it's that kind of debate here. That's what I'm looking for. Um, you know, something where I'm not going to call it a hot take, but, you know, kind of a well-researched proposal here that can say, hey, you know what? You might have grown up thinking that, uh, you know, Babe Ruth is greatest right fielder ever. Well, you know what? Why don't we take a look at Ted Williams's stats? Or, hey, you know, I know you think that uh, Ernie Banks might be the greatest second baseman ever. Well, you know what? Why don't I show you Roger Hornsby's stats? Stuff like that. And that's really kind of all I want to do. Really, the purpose of this is to educate baseball fans and provide an outlet of sorts uh, so they can take their mind off things for a while. It certainly sounds like a great way to do it, not just in the the sense of putting together what is a dream team for Major League Baseball, but it's very thought-provoking as to, to what greatness means now, what greatness meant then. And I really think a lot of people are going to brush up on their baseball history. And when you brush up on baseball history, you really brush up on the nation's history in a lot of ways. It, it's inadvertent. And I find that so exciting. Now, another thing that I'm thinking about, how do you measure the greatest managers? Yeah, see, that's a completely different ball game because obviously there's – there aren't many stats to quantify the worth of a manager per se. But when you think about the game's, the game's greatest managers, you obviously think about winning. You know, it's pretty self-explanatory and pretty straightforward. But also I think that there are managers who revolutionize the game and there are managers that kind of help shape the game. And when you have a conversation about the most you know, the the greatest managers per se, um, you know, a few names obviously pop into your mind. And, you know, in terms of 
you know, you'll think of Joe Torre and you'll think of Tony La Russa. You might even think of Bobby Cox or, you know, Earl Weaver, Sparky Anderson. Um, you know, you, you take a look back to, again, uh, say a guy like Connie Mack, who managed the athletics for, you know, 40 years or 50 years. Uh, you know, you look at a guy like John McGraw, who, you know, coached the Giants for 30 years and won a, you know, a number of championships. And you look at a guy like Casey Stangl, who was the leader of those Yankees dynasty teams in the 40s and 50s. So, you know, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a lot tougher to try and come up with a bona fide greatest manager of all time in a way, just because there are so many that, There, there are so many that, you know, did so much for the game um, and they accrued so much. And I, I you know, I, I, I can't have an answer for you. And I don't think uh, I'll really ever have an answer for you. And uh, really, you want to talk about an endless debate. That's uh, that's one for another day for sure. Yeah, you're, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. So, I mean, but that's the fun thing. And that's really what makes baseball uh, so special to a lot of us is, is, you know, I can connect the game to the game that my father watched and he can connect the game that he watched to his father and, you know, my grandpa with his father before that. So, you know, the fact that baseball has remained relatively unchanged for so long is what allows us to really appreciate it as much as we do and it allows us to have these conversations so um you know i and and i'm gonna kind of paraphrase uh historian george early a little bit here uh when you know archaeologists two thousand years from now uh do their research and and dig up uh what was the united states uh they're gonna find that its three greatest contributions were the Constitution, jazz music, and baseball. And I think uh, that's exactly what it should be. I can get behind that. I, I really can. I might <laughs> um, I might throw a modern adaptation to pizza on there, among a few other things. But, yeah, those are, uh, those are uh, the three bases. And I guess pizza is the home plate. But <laughs> I like it. Joe, that sounds awesome. And uh, on the topic of managers – to spoil my hypothetical vote, I would probably go for Casey Stengel because you'll likely have him managing some of his own on this all-time roster. This is awesome. I cannot wait to get involved in it myself. And once again, Joe, thank you for coming on. Hopefully there's some good news in the future as far as the fate of sports. But until then... We have stuff to look forward to, even if it's our own retrospective view of things. In the future, we're going to have a fun little discussion about sports movies and which are the most iconic for each sport and just which ones are, are great. I, I mean, so many of them are great, but to kind of go head to head with them, I know we have uh, alternating views and I have a bit of a controversial take, but I'm going to keep that in the bank for now. I'm definitely going to have you back on soon. Joe, thank you. Let's hope for some good news. I appreciate that. Looking forward to it. All right. Take care. You too. 
oh man, I miss baseball. But hopefully things are going to clear up and continue to get better. Anyway, New York, once again, thanks for listening. I really hope you get to enjoy the flyover today. It's something I know I'll certainly be looking forward to. And again, send us a video if you're able to take one. This is AM Rush. I'm Alex Mitchell. Remember, wash your hands.